Hey everyone, welcome to The Question Show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. I have no shameless self-promotion. Well, maybe I do. Um, uh, last week I mentioned the podcast. Of course, did you know that I do a different podcast called Astronomy Cast with my uh, brainy co-host, Dr. Pamela Gay? We've been doing this for 15 years. So if you want hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes all about space and astronomy focused on topics, check out Astronomy Cast. We've won a bunch of awards, five-star reviews. I think you'll enjoy it. So just do a search for Astronomy Cast wherever you get your podcasts. I've probably got a link in the show notes. All right. Uh, let's get on with this week's questions. Mauricio Tugneri. Hey, Fraser, what if two identical black holes are so close together that their event horizons overlap and you happen to be in that region? To which black hole will you fall into? I guess this is an extension from last week's question where someone was wondering if one black hole could pull you out of another black hole. Maybe if you were falling into a stellar mass black hole and a supermassive black hole came by and tried to pull you out of the black hole. And as I said, it doesn't work. And so if you're in a place where you've got two overlapping event horizons surrounding two black holes of identical size or different sizes, it doesn't really matter. The black holes are now in the process of merging. Once their event horizons cross over each other, then they can never get away from each other either. And so within a very short amount of time, those two black holes are going to merge to become one much larger black hole or massive black hole. And so if you're stuck in between those two black holes, it's kind of like asking like what happens if you get stuck in between two semis coming together? I'm sure you can you can use your imagination to figure that out. David Meyer, if we had the infrastructure and the economic means to build it, what would be the capacity of a theoretical lunar equatorial particle accelerator? All right. So this is an idea that's been kicking around for a little while. And essentially, the gist is, is that you build a particle accelerator like the Large Hadron Collider, but you go all the way around the circumference of the moon. And if you do the math, the circumference of the moon is about 11,000 kilometers. And so unlike CERN, which is relatively small, I think it's still like what, tens of kilometers in its full diameter to go to 11,000 kilometers and have a particle accelerator that's going all the way around that, what would be the outcome? Well, actually, this was the topic of a paper that came out back in June. And the paper is called a very high energy Hadron Collider on the moon. And they go into this exact idea. Once you sort of read through the paper and boil it down, the gist is that you're able to collide particles with 1000 times the energy that's capable of the Large Hadron Collider. And so the question is like, what would you do with smashing particles with that much energy? And the answer is, we have no idea. Um, the Large Hadron Collider got to the point that it was able to detect the Higgs boson. And this was like the last building block of the standard model of physics. And from that point, it's kind of terra incognita. Physicists don't know what comes next after the standard model is complete. There's one idea called supersymmetry. There's been other ideas to search for quantum gravity. But the reality is there's no theorized particles that exist in this regime beyond that. And yet the Large Hadron Collider should be able to find those kinds of things, a super conducting super collider, whatever comes after built here on Earth, or even 
this one that's on the moon would be capable of exploring the regime beyond the standard model. And physicists know that the standard model is incomplete. They still can't figure out how to push gravity and electromagnetism together and find out where you can get a theory of everything. And so right now, physicists are hoping to build a much more powerful accelerator. But the big criticism is that they don't know what they're going to use it for. Essentially, they're going to be blasting particles at random and just seeing what falls out of it and then trying to make some kind of analysis and try to figure out what could be in the realm beyond the physics that we understand today. And so if you had a particle accelerator of that size, it would be like, still, you're just randomly colliding particles. So really, it would be amazing to have like, I love the idea of, of enormous mega science experiments like that. But the theory has to catch up to the experimenters in this case, usually it's the other way around. But in this case, the theorists have run out of, or at least the the current accelerators haven't been able to find the particles that it sh they should be capable of finding using the theories that have been proposed so far. So we need a lot more theory work before we can start to see some of these next generation big particle accelerators come out. ECM. Hey, Fraser, how safe is James Webb and other satellites? Aren't there little pebbles in space or even dust that's flying at many kilometers or miles per second? What is the probability that not one pebble or dust particle will hit James Webb telescope or its solar panels and destroy it? Whenever you put a spacecraft out beyond the Earth, there is a risk that it's going to be impacted by some kind of space dust. We know that there is just mountains and mountains of dust flying around the solar system tons of it are falling into the earth every year. I mean, we see meteors, you go out any night, and you can see little pieces of dust hitting the Earth's atmosphere. And of course, these are going many kilometers per second, they're going so quickly, that they burn up in the atmosphere, and you get this great little flash in the sky. And so they've got to be everywhere. And yeah, absolutely, there is a likelihood, there's a chance that one of those could strike James Webb or Hubble or any of the telescopes that are out there. But the chances are very low. Space is very big. These particles are very small. And the spacecraft relatively to space are very small. And so I don't know of any examples of a spacecraft that is out beyond Earth orbit, getting impacted significantly taken offline by some kind of interplanetary space dust. Now we do know that spacecraft are hammered by particles closer into the Earth. But a lot of that is human created space junk. So whenever we launch spacecraft, whenever there's material that's left behind, things crash into each other, they create smaller and smaller pieces of debris. And eventually even you get like paint chips and little pieces of metal that are all flying around the Earth. And these can definitely impact the spacecraft, you could see some of the images of the main screen of the space shuttle, and it would have these little dents and chips and like it had been sandblasted by spending this time out in space. And so you're probably gonna have that to some degree but nothing that's going to be catastrophic. The chances are very low. Hangman 747 Tinman. Can we extend the life of our star by mixing up the volume, thus bringing new hydrogen to its center the way convection does in a red star? Sure, theoretically. Um, so here's the thing that's important to understand is that the sun is fusing hydrogen into helium at its core. And 
the actual core of the sun is a fairly small portion of the entire radius of the sun itself. So you've got this center core, which is actually doing the fusion. And then surrounding that is what's called the radiative zone. And so it's like this whole area that's not hot enough for fusion to happen. And so all of the energy that's produced in the core of the sun has to essentially random walk its way out through this radiative zone until it reaches the outer layer, which is called the convective zone. And in the convective zone, you've got blobs of hot gas lifting up and down inside the sun, kind of like a lava lamp. So they fall down, pick up heat at the surface of the radiative zone, they rise up, they bubble to the surface of the sun, they burp that material out into space, and then they cool down and then fall back down and pick up more gas. And that's how in the end, the energy that's coming from the sun is making its way out into space. But because you've got this radiative zone, it's like a shield that stops the tons of fuel that's in the outer reaches of the sun, the convective zone from getting into the core of the sun. And so the sun dies when it runs out of fuel in the core, but not when it runs out of hydrogen entirely. And so yeah, if you could take a great big stirring spoon and mix up the sun constantly, then you would be constantly shuffling around the hydrogen into the core, you would be mixing up the radiative zone, the convective zone, and then the sun would use up all the fuel, all the hydrogen that's located in it. And in fact, that's what the smaller red dwarf stars do. So when you have a star like a red dwarf, it's an entirely convective star. So these lava lamp blobs are going right down to the core lifting hot gas up to the surface, releasing energy and mixing the whole star. And that's one of the reasons why red dwarf stars last so long. So could we mix up the sun like a red dwarf so that it would last a lot longer? Yeah, but talk about mega projects. That sounds hard. Um, a more practical idea. I'll still like like slightly more practical is to extract material off of the sun. So you could say create magnetic fields, you could figure out ways to scoop up material off the sun and blast it off into space, capture it, put it into your hydrogen fusion reactor. And then the sun would get a little bit smaller, and eventually it would turn into a red dwarf, and then it would be fully convected for the rest of its life. So some super advanced civilization could could be stripping material off the sun, making it smaller, making it cooler, until eventually it can go into the red dwarf mode. But both of those are crazy science fiction ideas, nothing we're going to be able to attempt in in the conceivable future. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons. Crail, Dr. D, Matterflow, Paul Young, and the rest of our 787 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. B. Guzman, can you ice skate on Pluto? Probably not. I mean, there's probably some places where you could. So we think about say ice skating here on Earth on water. You want to ice skate in a place where the water has fairly freshly frozen. Maybe the water has pooled in some place and then it's frozen over a couple of days and you've got a nice smooth terrain that you can skate around on. On Pluto, the mountains are made of ice. So there's definitely going to be places that are icy and then often they're surrounded or they're covered by glaciers made of frozen nitrogen and methane and ammonia and other things like that, which is crazy. <laughs> um, and so it would be like glaciers, you wouldn't want to really ice skate on that. 
And even so one of the thoughts is that there could be very, very jagged like structures they are called penitentes. And we see them at some places here on Earth, where there are these sort of jagged spikes of ice that form and thought that they're on Europa and Enceladus and probably on Pluto as well. So I can't think you'd be able to find any place where you could ice skate. However, if you melted down some water and just poured it out on the surface of Pluto, then you can make a skating rink. Prince Charming is a magnetic pole reversal likely in the near future. How will this impact life on Earth? A magnetic pole reversal is a thing that happens here on Earth every few hundred thousand years. And how scientists have figured this out is kind of amazing. They can look at lava flows, essentially as fresh lava pours out of a volcano. If it's iron rich, there's magnetic crystals inside the rock as it's pouring out. And then it aligns itself with the magnetic field of the Earth. And so when scientists come along, they can analyze these lava flows, figure out what was the actual structure of the magnetic field. And if they go and sample in different locations, they can actually really map it with an incredible degree of precision. And then they find older and older lava flows, and they're able to look back in time to see what the magnetic field looked like. And what they found is that occasionally it flips around. And in fairly short periods of time, like it's not this slow shift to a new direction, it seems to be it's one way and then a little bit later, it's the other way. So we know that these happen on a regular basis and life is here. And we don't see mass extinction events happening every 100,000 years or so. And so it's fairly safe to think that when these magnetic field reversals happen, it's not catastrophic to life on Earth. But we always talk about the fact that the Earth's magnetosphere protects you from the dangerous space radiation that's pelting the Earth all the time. And so if it is this kind of jumbled, not protective magnetosphere for a couple of years, a couple of decades, then that might increase cancer risks for people on Earth for long periods of time. And so if it actually happens, we would want to take precautions, spend more time inside, spend more time undercover, try to figure out ways to minimize our exposure to space. But apart from that, I mean, it seems to have happened plenty of times in the past, it'll happen again in the future, and doesn't seem to be catastrophic. Cypercharged, let's say the moon would disappear in an artificial black hole created by that accelerator. For how long would life survive on Earth? All right, so so you're imagining that that particle accelerator that we talked about in the beginning of the episode generates a black hole and the black hole doesn't evaporate instantaneously, which is what it's predicted to do, but it somehow survives, falls into the moon, gobbles up the moon from the interior and turns the moon into a black hole. There was a science fiction story that was like this. It was uh, it was a Larry Niven story where astronauts show up on the moon and they find this ancient facility. And there's this weird device that's going and they shut off the power. And it turns out the device was holding a little microscopic black hole in stasis, and it drops inside the moon and starts just carving out the inside of the moon. And they do the math. And at some point in the next few thousand years, the moon will just be hollowed out and collapsing on itself and turn into a black hole. So what will that do to life on Earth? Not much, because if you replaced the moon with a black hole with the mass of the moon, then you would still have the gravity 
of the moon. And so we would still have the tides in exactly the same way. And that's like the big impact. Like if the moon disappeared, then we would lose the tides and a lot of species that had evolved in tidal areas would no longer be able to compete there the other kinds of animals in that area. And in fact, it's believed that the tides originally helped drive life forms to be able to push out onto the land because they would live in the tidal areas and the tides would keep them out of the water out in the air. And then for longer and longer periods of time, and they would evolve to get farther and farther up until eventually they're able to handle living outside of the water all the time. And maybe that wouldn't have been possible without the moon causing these tides. But yeah, if you lost the moon, then we would still feel the moon's gravity, we would still have the tides, but we wouldn't be able to see it or find it, which would be really weird, because we would know the moon was out there, orbiting around the Earth, but we wouldn't see it. But yeah, I mean, if you replace the sun with a black hole, the Earth and all the planets would still continue to orbit around it. You know, a black hole isn't anything special in terms of mass compared to a planet or a moon or whatever, just be dark, like there'd be no such thing as a full moon anymore. Um, that would be a problem. Ian Daniel, how much cheaper to launch a rocket into a polar orbit? It's actually more expensive to launch a rocket into a polar orbit. So just imagine the Earth. And if you launch around the equator of the Earth, you're in an equatorial orbit. But if you launch where your orbit is going around the North Pole, and then the South Pole and the North Pole, that's a polar orbit. And most rocket launches are done on an equatorial orbit. And the reason is because it's easier it's more fuel efficient, you've essentially got the 1000 kilometers per hour of speed that you're on the equator of the Earth it requires less energy for you to be able to get into space. And so that means you can launch with less propellant, or you can carry a heavier payload. And as you move farther north or farther south, then your speed going on the Earth is slower and slower and slower until eventually you reach the north or south pole, and then you're just standing turning once every 24 hours, you don't get any of that boost. But when you launch on a polar trajectory, to go around the poles, you're not able to take advantage at all of that sideways momentum. And so you have to use the full propellant to get into escape velocity to be able to orbit around that. But there are advantages to different orbits, polar orbit lets you get over top of every part of the Earth, eventually, while an equatorial orbit only allows you to go however high or low, you set your orbit at and so things like say the space station are limited to how far above the Earth they can go. And often people you know, if they want a communication satellite, or if they want say a geosynchronous satellite, they launch it an equatorial, if they want some like a weather satellite, or if they want some other kind of purpose, they will sometimes launch in polar orbit. So there's use for both. But the polar orbit is the more expensive launch to do. Pyrene. Hey Fraser, can we expect future missions bringing to Earth soil samples from distant locations? Will this be more revealing than a rover checking them by itself? We've already had a couple of samples coming from distant locations. There was the Japanese Hayabusa 1 mission, which returned a few micrograms of asteroid sample. So we've had that happen. And then there was NASA's Stardust spacecraft, which was collecting pieces of a comet's tail and brought that back to Earth. So we've got two. OSIRIS-REx is going to be bringing a sample back from asteroid Bennu. So we're gonna have three. And then of course, Perseverance is collecting these samples on Mars. 
And those samples are eventually going to be collected by a sample return mission and brought back to Earth. Now suddenly we'll have a couple of kilograms. Of course, we've got the samples from the moon brought by the astronauts as well as the more recent Chang'e mission. So samples returned from other worlds are incredibly valuable. There's kind of nothing that compares to the kind of science you can do by having a sample that was drawn from exactly where you know, like perseverance on Mars is going to be drilling into exactly this riverbed, exactly this silt, this clay, this sediment, and then pulling the sample, setting it down in a pristine way and bringing it back to Earth, as opposed to just a random meteorite that's found on Earth that happened to come from Mars. So absolutely, if we can get to this point where we've got a sample of Pluto, a sample of Europa, a sample of Enceladus, sample of Mars, Mercury, various other moons, scientists would have a field day with all of that. And that's like the future. Well, I mean, missions, they start out, you do a flyby mission, then you do an orbiter, and then you do a lander, then you do like a rover, and then you do a sample return mission. And we're at various phases across the solar system in that process. The moon is the farthest along. Mars is next, but we sent a flyby past Pluto. So we're working our way through this checklist of all the places across the solar system. It just takes time. But yeah, if we could have samples from all these places, planetary scientists would be so happy. All right, those are all the questions that we got this week. I thank you everyone for joining me live and everyone who asked their questions anywhere across my channel. Uh, of course, if you want to join the show live, we do this every Monday at 5pm Pacific time here on my YouTube channel. All right, we'll see you next week. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you'll want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights, and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com slash newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device. Go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks as always to Chad Weber and Nancy Graziano.